Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, February 21st, 2013. I gotta tell you, I am working vigilantly to not review any relationship sermons from the seeker-driven guys. (laughs) And it has created more work for me. (laughs) I I almost gave in to the dark side, though, folks. It was tempting. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. In fact, one of the things we're going to be listening to is um, we're going to be doing a Brian Houston update. And since he's one of these money-grubbing televangelist type, We're going to uh, be playing our Dr. Teeth song when we intro him. But uh, one of the things I've noticed about Brian Houston lately is a marked difference, and I mean a negative difference, in his uh, preaching and teaching. In fact, it... It, it the only way I can describe it, and I hate to sound to use the word because it, it sounds like hyperbole, but this is really what I think is that it's it's satanic. And uh, I, if you, in fact, the last sermon review that we uh, reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith from Brian Houston was when he appeared at Saddleback Church, and um, it, it was fascinating to watch his manipulation of the biblical text so that he would not have to actually say uh, what the passage said regarding repentance and contrition and forgiveness. Um, And he engaged in a very interesting Bible twist where, you know, he switched translations to the message to kind of skip through the part that had the part about repenting. And then once he got through it, you know, he switched back to the other translation he was using. And I mean, it was an, an overt clear strategy on his part to not say what the biblical text says. And so um, I was listening to his uh, the most recent sermon in the Hillsong podcast uh, yesterday, and I noticed that uh, I, I, we're not going to do a full-blown sermon review because it actually the way the that particular podcast lays out, it, it wouldn't make a good uh, full-blown sermon review. But what I noticed in, in this latest one is... A, a like whoa kind of moment. Yeah, sorry, I'm it's only Patricia King, and so yeah, <laughs> you remember when Patricia King would claim when she was getting downloads while she was talking or, or something like that, or the Holy Spirit was nudging her or something, and and so she'd be speaking, and all of a sudden she go woo, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, I've been doing this job a little too long. <laughs> getting my mind's going crazy. But anyway, coming back to the Brian Houston thing. Brian Houston, y'all familiar with that uh, that text in the Bible where t- Jesus talks about broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the uh, the path that leads to eternal life. And uh, I mean, if you if I were to go and ask the average Christian on the street, you know, uh, you know, what is that passage talking to? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. People, for the most part, I think would say that has something to do with salvation, you know, like heaven, hell, eternal life versus eternal damnation, you know, something to that effect, because that's really what that text is about. Well, I'm not going to tell you what Brian Houston does with it, but that's not what he did with it. Um, It was so bizarre and so, like, I've never quite heard a Bible twist like this that uh, I have to uh, play it for you and uh, do a little bit of time teaching today. But, you know, I just want to let you kind of give you a heads up. Uh, Something's up with Brian Houston. And and what I mean by that is is that I don't think he's capable of uh, teaching uh, the Bible correctly at all anymore. And uh, in like passages that are like to the average Christian are obvious as to what they're about. He's making points to not teach what those passages are about, but completely recast them in light of uh, his false teaching and uh, word of faith heresy. So it'd be fascinating, uh, you know, it should be fascinating for you to listen to. In fact, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Normally, I have a, um, a theme that I work for for each episode, unless I specify that I don't, Okay. Today is a themeless edition of Fighting for the Faith. I, and I really worked diligently to try to put a theme together, and I couldn't get the pieces to all work. And so I was left uh, basically going, you know, I hate going to the, uh, the, the, the station, going to the microphone without a full-blown true theme to each episode. But from time to time, I'm not able to work it out. So today is a themeless edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just be advised. And so, you know, if you're if you're you know, if you try to figure out what the themes are that I uh, that I do, I don't always name them. Sometimes you can figure it out by what I title the program. Sometimes you can you can figure it out by you know kind of backwards engineering it into a major theological category or uh, or, or what we in uh, the Lutheran circles call loces, but um, L O C I. And but you know that that being said. Um, it, generally, it's not too hard to figure out, and oftentimes I'll actually say it, but today, no theme today. Today is, you know, just kind of one thing after another after another, and we'll kind of work our way through it. So uh, we've got a uh, Brian Houston update, which I think I'm going to start off today. I, uh, um, the, kind of the slot where I would normally put a Patricia King update or a... Um, or an update regarding uh, William Tapley's prophetic insight. I'm going to do a, a Brian Houston update. And then when we come back from the break after doing that, um, I've got uh, some news stories that I want to get to. Uh, the number one is a news story uh, that's entitled The Shrinking Church. The Shrinking Church. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, then you may have already seen the article that I'm going to be referencing and reading on the air today. Uh, but the the point that I want to make is this, and uh, you know I'll, I'll kind of make it now and then reiterate it when the time comes, and that is that for decades the liberals within you know the visible church have been basically 
arguing that in order for the church to be relevant, in order for the church to grow, it must be relevant. And in order for it to be relevant, you got to give the world what the world wants, because otherwise people aren't going to show up to our churches and they're going to shrink. And so the, the liberalism has historically put itself forward as a church growth strategy. Okay. Um, but we now have objective, clear, undeniable evidence that liberalism is not a church growth strategy. It is an actual strategy for church suicide. And uh, we'll be talking about that on the, uh, the other end of our first break today. And then a great article that I want to pass along to you um, from Christianity. Uh, dot com. The article is entitled "The Bible Is Not About You." This is one of the recurring themes that we have here on at uh, Fighting for the Faith. That the scriptures are about Christ. They are about Jesus. They are not about you. And uh, there has been a rash of narcissistic eisegesis that has taken over the church, where people narcissistically read themselves into the Bible and uh, turn every uh, Old Testament story or even New Testament story into something about you. Uh, you weren't there. It's not about you. This is about this is the story of what God has done for you in all paths, all stories uh, in the scripture actually point us to Christ. Yeah, I, I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. In fact, uh, we're working on uh, on a um, a, a March uh, featured book uh, that we that we want to uh, send out there and uh, make available, and it's uh, it's entitled "The Great Works of God" by Valerius Herberger. Now you're thinking, now that's quite a name. <laughs> yes, it is. But uh, stay tuned; I'll give you more information on this. Um, there's two volumes, actually. There's four volumes and two books. And uh, we're working with uh, Concordia Publishing House to make these available to you. So stay tuned. I'll, I'll give you more information on that. But uh, Valerius Herberger was an 18th century Lutheran pastor and theologian. And he was in, with, within you know classical Lutheranism and just w one of the best exegetes out there in finding Christ typologically in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. And his insights are amazing. And uh, and so we're, we're like I said, we're going to be making this available in the month of March. So I'll give you more details about it. But um, you know, from time to time, I get emails from people or Facebook wall uh, questions from listeners going, where can I go? What what resource can I find uh, in order to help me? find Christ in, in these Old Testament passages. And so uh, we've been working uh, with CPH to get this available. We, I think we all, we're almost there uh, on how we're going to work the, the, uh, the deal out. But um, this is uh, the resource that I would point you all to. And uh, so stay tuned. More details coming on that. Uh, but anyway, so Coming back to what we're going to do today, the Bible is not about you. Great article that I plan on passing along to you. You should uh, find it helpful, insightful, and it's good that we got more people saying the same thing and identifying one of the major problems within uh, the uh, the evangelical church, the greater evangelicalism, and that is this narcissistic eisegesis and bizarre reading of Scripture. So we'll be passing that along. And then in hour number two, we have a sermon review from Potential Church. Now, this will be a full-blown Troy Grambling <clears throat> Uh, sermon review. It's called If I Could Do It Over Again. That's the name of the sermon that we'll be reviewing. And the last two 
sermons we've reviewed from Potential Church have not been delivered by Troy Gramling. So let's see if, uh, while taking some time off, if he actually uh, spent some time being instructed on sound biblical hermeneutics and exegesis, because those poor folks over at Potential Church... Um, they're no longer a church, they're just a church in Potentia, and we're hoping that eventually they'll be able to uh, receive back again the uh, church status, but they're not a church any, anymore, they're just a church in Potentia. So that's what we'll, we'll round out the uh, program for today, so I strongly recommend that you uh, make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers if you have them, they do enhance your uh, listener experience. Um, of course, take all of the uh, proper and necessary precautions that you don't injure yourself while listening to Fighting for the Faith. That has been known to happen, or you know, people come close to actually hurting themselves because some of the crazy things they hear, they hear on the program, end up <laughs> making them go, "What?" And then you do that at the wrong time, it could be life-threatening. So, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we're doing a money-grubbing televangelist update. Here is Dr. Teeth and his rendition of Money. Don't want no loving, don't want no kissing, don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame, just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El Dinero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oof. And whistle for wearing a green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. Back collector, I'm a paper bill inspector, I'm a savage for that cabbage man to me is golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me, spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I wanna be the guy that they send out to prove That's Dr. Teeth and his rendition of money, money, money. Yeah, we do that for the uh, televangelist types out here. And by the way, Brian Houston is a huge um, word of faith uh, prosperity preacher out there in uh, Sydney, Australia. So I think that's very appropriate for him as well. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to right now is a snippet, if you would. Not a full-blown sermon review, but a snippet from the uh, recent Hillsong Church podcast, sermon podcast, and the name of the of this, the message, by the way, is Understand the Power Your Words Have on Your Dream. <laughs> I mean, just a name, the name of a sermon like that should uh, clue you in that what you're about to hear has absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, instead, this is a uh, <clears throat> message designed to scratch itching ears, draw a large audience, and bring in lots and lots and lots of money, money, money. But uh, with that, uh, I found it fascinating 
the particular Bible twist that uh, Brian Houston engages in, um, like to the point of like totally missing the entire point of a particular Bible passage. But rather than me telling you about it, let's let Brian Houston explain to us. So without any further ado, here is Brian Houston from his sermon entitled Understand the Power of Your Words or Your Words Have on Your Dream. Here we go. Began to speak this morning about destiny definers. Specific things that define the path and the destiny of your life. Things that define the path and the destiny of your life. Oh, we're off to a great start, aren't we? The kind of things that determine whether or not you fulfill God's potential and God's purpose for your life or take a different path altogether. And I couldn't help but think again tonight when Sanger talked about a young guy so full of zeal and enthusiasm. You know, out of what God's done in his heart at Hillsong, he's already written a sermon for the day when he can preach it. And Joe Garrett spoke about a... A little girl who got so touched that she already had a vision of a multitude worshipping and her leading to worship. And I've got faith to believe that those young people and many, many more like them will fulfill the thing that God's put on their heart. But the reality is it all comes down to specific choices they make and certain things that define our destiny. And the Bible describes two gates and two paths with two very contrasting destinations. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, spoke about a wide gate that many take that leads to destruction or to death. And on the other hand, he talked about a narrow gate that few take that leads to life. It's a path to death and it's a path to life. Now, so he's quoting the tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, where Jesus talks about the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. So he's referenced it here, but is he talking about heaven and hell? Well, let's listen a little further. They go in different directions and they have very different destinations. You can see those same paths and destinations described right through the scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, the Lord says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Praise God. That both you and your descendants, the promise for life, if you take that gate and go down that path, is not only for you, but for the generations to come. Whereas if you go the other way and take the path towards the devastation of kingdom purpose, it's... The devastation of kingdom purpose? Take the path of devastation of kingdom purpose? What is that? Sad, but the descendants aren't even mentioned. John 10 verse 10, Jesus, same comparison. He says, the thief comes but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I'm coming, you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. Same things. Well, here, Proverbs chapter 18 verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Obviously in life, we eat the fruit of the words we speak. Death and life, same two paths towards the same destination. And one of the destiny definers described here is our tongue or our words. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 10, if you would please. And right through Proverbs chapter 10, verse after verse after verse, describes the contrast between the road to life and the road to death. Death not always meaning that you're actually literally physically dead, not breathing, 
going blue, decaying. You can be the living dead. Check out the person next to you is not the living dead. Just Okay, so you see what he's doing here? So apparently, and I had no clue that this was the case, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Mark, and not Mark, but Matthew chapter 7 is teaching that the broad is the road that leads to destruction. He's not talking about hell. He's talking about, well, the destruction of kingdom purpose in your life. Yeah, I think we're going to have to open our Bibles. In fact, if you have your Bible, open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read for a little bit and uh, and see if we can figure out from the context of Matthew chapter 7 as to what Jesus is talking about. In fact, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 23. So if you have your Bible again, Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to be beginning here at verse 13. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, now the question is, is Jesus talking about um, the, the path that leads to the destruction of your God destiny? Well, let's keep reading and see what he says, because the context will tell us. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, so notice a few things that are going on here. Um, Jesus is talking about on that day. What would that day be? That's the day of judgment when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. See, and they people will come up to Jesus on the day of judgment and foolishly point to their their works. Oh, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? These are religious people, okay? They, they're out there prophesying, casting out demons. You could think of the Patricia King gang here, you know, doing all these things. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Where are they departing? Where are they going? Answer, well, if this is the last day, they're not getting into the kingdom of heaven, they're on their way to hell. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But that's not what Brian Houston is doing with his text. He's made this about, well, uh, you not achieving your um, your God destiny, whatever that is. I'm not sure what a God destiny is. But I, I assure you that Matthew 13, talking about broad is the <clears throat> road that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life, 
That's not talking about whether or not you achieve your God destiny or your or dreams for your life. No, this is talking about whether or not you're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Now, let me come back to verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He is the one who, you know, my Father who is in heaven. So, <clears throat> what is, okay, you can, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, that's important stuff. So, okay, you don't, trust me when I tell you this, you don't want to end up in hell. You don't want to end up in the lake of fire. So, Jesus here is telling us very clearly that uh, just because you've done religious things in the name of Jesus doesn't make you, you know, doesn't mean that you're in, in, okay? Instead, you've got to do the will of the Father. So what is the will of the Father? Well, luckily, we don't have to um, guess on this. We do not have to make this up um, <clears throat> because Scripture actually defines this very clearly. In fact, if you want to flip over to the Gospel of John, um, verse uh, chapter 6, I'm going to uh, point out a few verses in chapter 6 and back up into chapter 3, and you'll kind of lay some of this out here. But uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, I'll start at verse 39. Here's what Jesus says. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me. Okay, this would be the Father, right? Uh, this is the will of, the, of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, John chapter 6, verse 28. This is what it says. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work, the singular work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Or verse uh, 47 of the same same uh, chapter, verse 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Your works do not save you in the slightest. They do not contribute to your salvation a bit. And so you want to be doing the will of God, right? It's so that you will be saved, right? Well, it's not something that you do. It's something that's given to you. Belief in him is actually a gift. And this is a this is what Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2 says very clearly. Let me uh, point this out to you. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> I'll start at verse 1 so we get the context here. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among, uh, disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me point this out. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is the gift of God. What is the this? When it says this is the gift of God, what's it referring to? The answer is both grace and faith itself are a gift from God. You are not capable of believing the good news. God actually gives you that belief. And the reason why is because you're born dead and trespasses and sins. And that's why Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel, God regenerates you. Through the preaching of law and gospel, you are convicted of your sins and raised to life in Christ and are born from above or born again, as uh, John chapter uh, John chapter 3 says so clearly. In fact, let me back this up. Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil." For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Okay? So the good news is that Christ saves sinners and has bled and died for sinners like me and like you. And he gives us faith to believe in him, to trust in him. He regenerates us, raises us from the dead, causes us to be born again, to be born from above, born anew, right? And this is all God's work. And this is all a this is all good news. And this is what is referred to, this is what the Matthew chapter 7 Jesus is referring to about the the narrow gate versus the wide gate. The narrow gate is the one that leads to eternal life, and Jesus is that gate. The, the broad road that leads to destruction is the one that we're all born on. And Christ rescues and saves us and takes us off of that broad highway and puts us on the path, literally leads us right into his heavenly kingdom. And all of this is by his mercy and his grace. It's not something that you earn or do it's given to you as a gift this is what the good news is but brian houston in this sermon literally has changed the meaning of that passage and made it about whether or not you achieve your god-given destiny here on earth and that's not what this passage is about at all let's listen a little bit more just double check Look at the key indicators, like were they worshipping, were their hands raised, did they say amen, are they smiling, do they have a Bible, do they look like they love God? Check they're not the living dead. Check the vitals. You see, you can be alive but dead to God's purpose and dead to God's plan. And just those young people I talked about have an awesome future, as does every human being in humankind but the reality is it comes down to whether or not we take the path towards the death of kingdom purpose or the path that breathes life and one of the key 
issues is our words. And here in Proverbs chapter 10, it talks about verse after verse gives contrast. And I believe there are specific destiny definers that are themes. I spoke of one of them this morning. That was integrity. The scripture says, he who walks in his integrity walks securely. And these that theme runs through Proverbs 10. And the second one is our conversation, our words, what's on our lip, what comes from our mouth. It's actually a destiny definer. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And there are at least 10 verses in Proverbs chapter 10 that gives the contrast between the path to life and the path to death that comes from the way we speak. Yeah. Um, it, in a, again, in Proverbs chapter 10, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's not saying that your words are like magic and that they create your, you know, they create your future. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about how you can literally like shoot yourself in the foot or how do they put it? You, you open mouth, insert foot. You can literally cause destruction in your own life by, by your words. Not because you've said things like, Oh, I'm sick. I have the flu. And somebody, oh, no, no, you've just cursed yourself. Don't say that. You know, and that's not what it's referring to at all. Instead, it's, it's destruction through gossip, lying, deceit, you know, things like that. That's what this is referring to. <clears throat> yeah, so it's, it's, something's up with, um, with Brian Houston. And, and what I mean by that, you know, kind of circling back and making my point, I, it takes some pretty crazy um, hermeneutical gymnastics to take Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 15 and make it about you uh, being on the path to kingdom destiny in this life and, you know, achieving your kingdom purposes. That is not what this text is about at all. In fact, it's such a bad Bible twist that you know, I'm literally left scratching my head wondering what is going on with Brian Houston because now I'm beginning to see a pattern emerging. Every time I check in with him, it's as if he is purposely and deceitfully making sure that he does not, under any circumstance, preach repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Instead, it's uh, he's making a, a very concerted effort to twist and mangle God's word in such a way that you don't see what those passages are really saying. Again, the only word that I can come up with for this type of behavior it's satanic. So what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We get back looking at an article regarding the shrinking church. So does making your church relevant to the culture out there, embracing liberal theology, grow your church or kill it? Well, the proof is in the pudding. You're going to find out. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... <laughs> 
You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen, and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Verdict. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tycrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, 
piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. your pastor or pastorix tells you that the broad road that leads to destruction is about, well, you not achieving your purpose in life, and the path that leads to life is about you achieving your purpose, run, you're not in a church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you're not already a member of our crew, well, have you considered joining our crew? Well, don't just consider it. Do it. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. It's only $6.95 every month. It's a great way to support us. Not a lot of money, but the more people that join, it helps take the peaks and valleys, especially the valleys, out of our monthly support so that we can continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and continue to meet our, our, our expenses every month as they continue to grow as our audience continues to grow and uh, thank you for your support for those of you who are supporting us of course if you'd like to make a one-time contribution you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 moving along from the orlando sentinel The headline reads, The Shrinking Church. The Shrinking Church. This is by Jeff, uh, sorry, Jeff Kunareth of the uh, of the Orlando Sentinel, and uh, here's what he writes: the the Lutheran magazine's January cover story is about the decline in membership and churches of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. By the way, this would be the ELCA. Now, there are different varieties of Lutherans out there. Let's just put it this way: the ELCA. Uh, they're about as liberal as liberal gets. These are the ones that ordain uh, LGBT, gays and lesbians, women. You know, they, their theology is an absolute train wreck. In other words, they don't believe a single thing. They don't believe in the authority of Scripture. They completely redefine everything. It's just an absolute mess. Of course, um, one can go back historically and take a look at where the churches that comprise the ELCA. It's kind of a, a large pan-Lutheran organization, if you would. But you can go back and you can find where they jumped the tracks. Okay, where they jumped the tracks. It It's when they abandoned the authority of Scripture and bought into the rhetoric of those on the left saying, uh, the, the rhetoric basically saying, if you want to grow your church, you cannot expect to grow your church 
in today's cultural climate, and not in the 20s, you have to go back to the 20s, not in the 20th century, if if you believe in a literal six-day creation, no, you can't, no one wants to go to a church that believes that God created the world in six days, no, 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 that's a formula for killing your church, people will think you're irrelevant, oh, wait, you believe in the virgin birth, oh, that's ridiculous, you can't believe in the virgin birth and expect to grow your church, people will think you're a rube, you'll never be invited to, you know, dinner parties by some of the more prestigious people out there. No, 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 you can't do that. Oh, and you believe that Jesus literally rose from the grave bodily? Ah, you can't do that. No, no, not if you want to grow your church. See, the, nobody out there in the, in the world wants to come to a church. They, they believe in miracles, the virgin birth, Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement, a literal six-day. No, no, you got to make your your church relevant to the the, the, the modern religious consumer. And, and the way you do that is, is you know, rather than talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection, what you could do is you can preach about um, how on Easter we again realize that the, that the flowers bloom again. And, you know, and see, there's new life from death. Or how God resurrects dreams or something like that. But you can't. No, no, no. You can't take the Bible literally when it talks about those things. No, that's, that's a formula for destroying your church. If you want to grow your church, you must be relevant to what the culture outside of the church wants. Because when you do that, they'll be interested. And then they'll come in droves and your church will grow and the churches will thrive. That's what they tell you. And oh, the, the oh, the other thing is the, the world out there. They they want they want they don't want just male pastors. No, they want female pastors too. Oh, and and yeah, and the other thing is is that the world is is really warming up to and embracing homosexuality, and so you need to do that too. Because if you you know, if you want to be relevant you, and grow your church, you got to give the world what the world wants and what they expect. You, you can't preach about you know orthodox christianity you know original sin jesus's penal substitutionary death on the cross repentance and the forgiveness you can't preach in in the the world doesn't want that they want life tips on you know on you know on how to feel better they want inspirational things that make it make them want to go out and give everybody a big kumbaya hug and and they feel like that we all just love each other and it's just the best thing ever it's like a hallmark moment that's what the world wants right you want to grow your church right well if you want to grow your church you have to give the world what it wants don't you you can't expect them to come to your church if if you're teaching all of that silly old ancient Christian, uh, you know, orthodoxy stuff. No one wants to believe that. And so what happened? A whole bunch of churches, not just one or two, practically an entire segment of churches. And you see this in the, in the ELCA. You see this in the United Methodist Church. You see this in the, uh, just name the, 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 you know, the liberal organization. You see this in the Episcopal Church, Okay. The, all these churches that have tried to adapt the content of Christianity to fit the major expectations and desires and cultural ideas out there in the world, and all under the name, you do this and you're going to grow your church, right? Well, that isn't what happened. Let me continue reading. 
The story written by uh, Nikola, uh, I can't even pronounce this, Radzizutsky, uh, says that nearly 30% of Elka churches average less than 50 people for Sunday services. Average worship attendance dropped 26% between 2003 and 2011. More than 1,000 ELCA churches have closed during the past 10 years, some merging with other congregations and some just shutting down. The plight of the Lutherans is not unfamiliar to Protestant denominations in 2012. Less than half of Americans identified themselves as Protestants, according to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. Quote, nearly every U.S. Christian denomination has seen membership declines in the past uh, two years, including Southern Baptists, who seemed invincible in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, Radizuski writes, the Lutherans have tried to reverse the trend with Congregational Renewal Partnership Grants, which provide 163 con- uh, provided 163 congregations with $2.5 million in 2011. The grants are for three years, but renewal often takes five to seven years, said Neil Harrison, director of Renewed Evangelizing Congregations. Quote, for a congregation to pursue renewal, Harrison said, it needs to identify <clears throat> that things are not the way they want them to be and be willing to explore. Christ Lutheran in, in Catosville, Maryland, used a renewal grant and doubled its attendance to increase community involvement, Bible study groups, and outreach with youth program. We have, quote, we have done some remarkable things here as a church, said Cindy Redman, Congregational Council President. We really are believing in our ability to recover and renew. They're believing in their ability, <clears throat> in their ability to recover and renew. Yeah, um, what they need to do is they need to repent. They need to repent of all of their false theology and their false doctrine, which they embraced all in the name of growing their churches and being relevant and realize that liberalism has not grown the church. It's literally caused the church to commit suicide. That's what's happened. We're, th- this is the reason why the mainline denominations, like the liberal Lutherans, the Methodists, and others, they've ex- and the Episcopalians, they've the reason why they've experienced such sharp decline is real simple. Okay, you and I have no power whatsoever to cause somebody to be born again through our means, our programs, or or anything like that. The power lies in the preached word, in the preached gospel. It is through the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It is through the preached word of God, not the attacked word of God, the doubted word of God, the the questioned word of God, the uh, word of God that uh, is you know model is changed or whatever that people are actually are raised from the dead spiritually. It's through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified for our sins and raised again from the third day that God uses to raise people from the dead. Liberalism leaves people dead in trespasses and sins. And, and here's the idea, is why would the world want to get up on Sunday morning, sacrifice one of their two days off in order to go to a church that pretty much tells them what they already believe anyway, that they're good people and, uh, you know, and, you know, maybe they could organize and feel better about themselves if maybe they get involved in social justice or stuff like that. You don't have to go to a church to do that. 
why would the church want to go someplace that's basically telling them that they're already okay the way they are? The answer is they don't. And this is objective proof that liberalism doesn't grow a church. It kills churches. And what these liberal churches need to do is repent. They're not going to experience real renewal, real uh, recovery, until they recover the gospel and the authority of Scripture and basically say they were sold basically a bag of of so-called magic beans that didn't do anything. And the reason they did it is because they listened to the world rather than the word of God. They doubted God's word and trusted in their own means, their own methods, their own ideas, their own doctrines to grow Christ's church. But the only way that Christ's church grows is through the preaching of his word, not the attacking of it. It grows through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, not through the attacking of those concepts. Liberalism is bankrupt. It's bankrupt spiritually. It's bankrupted the churches. It's destroyed like large swaths of what was Christianity. And you know we're talking more than a 1,000 churches who've had to close. What does that tell you? You embrace liberalism, you are on the fast track to seeing your church literally being destroyed. The only way churches are renewed is through the constant renewal that comes when Christ raises people from the dead through the preaching of his word and the belief in his word through the preaching of the gospel. Sinners being called to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. This, yeah, liberalism, we can definitively say that the whole experiment you know, is a complete failure. We have objective proof. Liberalism doesn't grow churches. It kills them. So do, anytime you hear somebody say, oh, the church has to change or die. No, you just basically say we have facts that prove that when the church changes, it actually does die. It dies. And it doesn't matter if the megachurches are thriving because eventually that megachurch bubble, it's going to burst. It's going to burst. And those people aren't preaching the gospel. They're teaching a false gospel. And then when the megachurch bubble finally bursts, all of their highfalutin megachurch things are just going to come crashing down in a mountain of debt with a bunch of people who, rather than trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, have are, well, trusting in their dreams in order to achieve their God destiny here on earth. And... You can only do, you know live in that fantasy world for so long before reality actually strikes. Moving along. Now, I don't have any music for this segment, but this is from the uh, website Christianity.com. The headline reads, The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you. This is by Byron Yawn. Byron Yawn. And this is a fantastic article, and let me read it to you. Byron writes, he says, I hate to disappoint you, but the Bible is not about you. Specifically, it was not written to improve the quality of your daily existence in the way that you think. It's not a spiritual handbook, and it's not a guide to determine God's will for your life. The Bible is not a story of God determining an eternity past to send his son to earth to create a more satisfactory existence for you. But this is usually where we take the story. We are seriously self-absorbed when it comes to our Bibles. 
Who else could take the unbelievable episode of Moses and the burning bush and bend it back toward our everyday experience or the life of Joseph and draw out principles for effective management? Your life and happiness are not adequate points of reference for the scope of what God has done and is doing. Neither are mine. It's bigger than you, and it's bigger than me. In the Bible, we are watching, as redemption comes to pass on the pages of Scripture, one unbelievable event after another, eventually leading to Christ. Each page rumbles with anticipation. When you see it from here, the Bible opens up in ways you've never imagined. It takes off. Unfortunately, we've, conditioned, we, we've been conditioned to read ourselves onto the pages and into the events of Scripture. We don't even realize we're doing it. What's the first question we ask of, of the Bible in our personal reading times or church services? The question is, how is this relevant to me? This is the wrong question entirely. No question could push us further from the real story. It's very much like walking out into the night sky and assuming all the stars showed up to look at us. When we approach the Bible this way, we can't help but read it as if we're the center of the biblical universe and all of its history revolves around us. When everything is read through the lens of self, self-improvement, self-contentment, we're destined to miss the point. But this is what we always do. Is it any wonder most Christians, even those who care deeply about the Word of God, are unable to put it all together? Usually, biblical stories are approached as a set of isolated events with no connection to each other or to the greater redemptive plotline of the Bible. Without the real story, the events of the Bible become merely parables for better living, moral platitudes, character studies, or whatever else we can come up with. In the absence of a greater plot, this is all we have. Over the years, popular Christianity has practically rewritten the Bible. Our version of various events reads more like a fairy tale than God's story. Here we go. <clears throat> These are some examples. Eve's decision to eat the fruit and the subsequent uh, disintegration of humanity becomes a lesson on the effects of neglect, of negligent leadership and, and, and an absentee husband. Cain's homicidal rage becomes a lesson on avoiding sibling rivalry. Abraham's attempted sacrifice of his only son becomes a lesson in trusting against all odds for God to provide or how we should all surrender our children to God. Moses, before a burning bush, becomes a prototype for decision-making. Gideon becomes an example of how to determine the will of God. The prayer of Jabez becomes a lesson about expanding our personal influence. David's encounter with the fighting champion of a hostile nation becomes a lesson in overcoming our greatest personal challenges, quotes, giants. Jonah, a prophet miraculously swallowed by a fish and vomited out on a specific shoreline, becomes an example of the futility of resisting God's purpose in your life. Jesus' testing in the wilderness in a, a, is a template for how we can resist temptation. The story of a caring Samaritan is a model of how we should eat, reach out with compassion to those of, and other races and classes. And a young unnamed paralytic dropped through a roof at the feet of Jesus by four men becomes a lesson on the value of friendship. None of these interpretations are remotely close to the real point of the events themselves. We've told them wrong. You may think I'm crazy, but stick with me. I used to approach the Bible the same way. I totally missed it. Or to be more specific, I missed the point. All of these events and people led us to the person of Jesus. It's about Jesus. 
the lessons we typically draw out of the biblical stories are secondary observations at best. Usually this is because it's all we know to do with them. Fact is, the same sort of life lessons could be derived from any contemporary biography or history. The meanings and applications we've given these events have nothing to do with what's going on in the true story. Our approach is about the same as looking for stock tips in the sonnets of Shakespeare. This oversight is so very tragic. Something so much greater is underway in these sacred passages. These events were not intended to be spiritualized into oblivion and then dissected as lessons about raising kids or starting businesses. They are intended to be marveled at by God's people. We stand and point at what God has done. They are each a link in a chain of redemptive history that moves from Genesis to Revelation. They're, they're not isolated at all. They're amazing demonstrations of the divine continuity of God's power. They are each the commitment of a holy God to keep his promises and honor his holy name among men. Our response to the individual incidents should be, look how God used this to get us to Jesus, not look how this relates to my longing for significance. We've lost the main storyline that pulls all the pieces together and gives them a consistent meaning. So we essentially take what's available and make up a story. What we've come up with in evangelicalism is a bit like Little House on the Prairie. Didn't Michael Landon bear a strange resemblance to King David? The Bible is now the epic tale of trials and triumph on the frontier of a long-ago land. It's no longer about what God has been doing for man and is more about what humanity has done to impress God. We, we approach it more as a collection of fables that indirectly offer principles for life. The Bible is no longer about how God went about saving humanity from the brink of desolation. The Bible is more the account of how God occasionally stopped to applaud the faith of a few exceptional people. It's less about what he has done. It's almost exclusively, exclusively what we can do if we learn from the lives of the heroic figures in God's word. We do the weirdest things to the Bible in the absence of the cohesive theme. No other book is treated so recklessly by people who honor that same book so greatly. Among our favorite rewrites are character sketches. We like to examine the lives of Old Testament saints, triumphs, and tragedies alike, and offer various patterns for living. Almost everyone assumes that this is the very reason the Old Testament saints show up in the biblical record. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua... Gideon and Deborah have all come to represent examples to live by or not to. What else could be the reason for the focus of their lives or for this focus on their lives? Therefore, we mind them for spiritual and moral principles. Sermons are preached and books are written about their lives and offered as blueprints for daily life success in business or practical decision-making skills. Every Sunday, kids sit in the Sunday school classes, look at flannel boards or snip at construction paper with safety scissors and learn how these ancient figures are examples of faithfulness or failure. The consistent message is, be like them and life will work out better or don't be like them and life will work out better. Work hard. Harder, make good decisions and stay out of trouble like Joseph and God will bless you. When these same kids reach their early 20s, struggle with real life and fail to reach Joseph's moral high ground, they despair. They can't do it. Joseph was exceptional. They get angry with God when life does not work out according to the coloring pages. Eventually, they find Christianity irrelevant and powerless to save them 
and then they walk away. They're exactly right. Joseph is powerless to save them. We're creating angry moralists, setting them up for failure, and then blame, and then they'll be blaming it on the Bible. Tragically, the one message that actually could save them from their failure was before us in the story of Joseph the entire time. We failed to mention it. Families would run from our children's programs if parents knew the effect our Bible lessons are having on their kids. This approach to understanding this amazing book could not push us further from the real message and central character of the Bible. I know this sounds ridiculous to most of us, and maybe even sacrilegious to some, but it should be obvious. The Bible is about Jesus, not Moses or any other biblical figure. The point of Moses is not Moses, but the one whom Moses points to. The Bible explicitly argues this very thing. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his household. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was the faith, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Great article, by the way. And it's not even an article. This is actually a small snippet taken from the forthcoming book written by Byron Yawn entitled Suburbianity. Can we find our way back to biblical Christianity? Mm. I'm looking forward to uh, reading this book. I think um, <clears throat> Byron Yawn has uh, put his finger on the exact problem. And that's this. You go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to hear about you rather than Christ, to read yourself into the biblical text, to basically use Jesus for experiencing an easier, more influential, affluent life. That's not what Christ is about, nor is that biblical Christianity. It's a complete twisting of Scripture. And the twisting is so bad and so off-topic that you don't really know the truth about who the Bible is about and the message that it's trying to convey. The suburbianity that we're, we constantly hear at Fighting for the Faith in the seeker-driven movement, that's not Christianity. That's a false Jesus and a false gospel and a false message, all using the Bible to create these messages. But that message and that gospel and that Jesus is powerless to save you because that's not the real gospel nor the real Jesus that's being preached in those sermons. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We come back, sermon review from <clears throat> Potential Church. They're not a church anymore, they're just church in Potentia. <laughs> sermon titled, If I Could Do It All Over Again. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air 
The sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipeout! The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pon with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. to a Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Let's see if we can do this right.
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, Masleration comes to us via Potential Church. They're no longer a church. They're actually just a church in Potentia. Um, Troy Gramling, the Martext, will be presiding over this Masleration today. And the name of uh, said Masleration is If I Could Do It Over Again. Um, I think that it's safe to say that Troy Gramling, out of any megachurch pastor out there in the seeker-driven megachurch scene, is by far the most clueless about what the Bible is really about. Um, Most of them are clueless to begin with, but I think Troy Gramling, well, quadruply so. Um... (laughs) I wish I could tell you how this is going to work out. I just expect it's going to go bad. We check in with Potential Church on a regular basis to see if there's any hope that they will go from being a church in Potentia to actually being a real church. And with each visit um, on our sermon review segment, they seem to get farther away from actually becoming a real church again. And um, I'm afraid to report, although I hope this isn't a spoiler for you, that what you're about to hear isn't going to create any confidence that um, <clears throat> Troy Gramling has actually taken any steps to get closer to the goal of actually regaining church status. So without any further ado, here is Troy Gramling and his <clears throat> masleration entitled, If I Could Do It Over Again. Here we go. That didn't go as planned. How am I going to pay for this? Yeah, just so you know, it's there's this a little intro video showing an, an artist drawing. It started off by drawing a, a husband and wife on their wedding day, and that didn't go as planned. So he wadded up the piece of paper, threw it on the ground. And then he drew a picture of a house with a car in front of it and a little white picket fence. And that didn't go as planned. So he took the paper, wadded it up, and threw that on the ground. Ay, ay, ay. This is bad. Now he's drawing a bottle of wine and some wine glasses. I didn't think it was a problem. Now he's drawing a person in front of a computer. Should have stayed at my other job. Oh, poor guy. He has a... He's not happy with his job. Oh. Paper on the ground is getting large in a pile now. Regret. Ever wish you could do it over again? No. I'm hoping for forgiveness.
right. All right. Uh, let me explain to you what you can't see because this is radio. Um, the, there is the stage of potential church. They're just a church in potential. And it, the, uh, the stage is set up to look like, um, well, a game show. Uh, what what was the name of that show where you know you had the three curtains? Is it Let's Make a Deal? You know, this is taking me back a while. So I think this is like look, made to look like one of the sets from a game show. I think that was called Let's Make a Deal, where you you can pick behind what's behind curtain number one or curtain number two or curtain number three. You can't make this up. Good day. It's great to see you guys. Now, when it comes to regret. We've all felt that at different times in our lives, haven't we? I, I want to share with you just... Uh, I'm hoping that Troy Gramling gets to the point where he feels regret for all of these false, narcissistic, so-called sermons that he's preached, and that he repents and preaches Christ and him crucified for our sins from every passage of Scripture, Old or New Testament. That, I'm hoping that he comes to regret what he's currently doing right now. A, a little bit of... First of all, what Webster says regret is, it's that it's to be very sorry. And I looked at a lot of different sites and that's all it said. It's that feeling you get in your stomach when you look at where you are, you don't like where you are, and you realize that had you made a different decision over here, you wouldn't be where you are. So this is a story about better decision making so that you can be happier with the outcomes in your life. Regret is often followed with this, oh, if I would have just done that. Regret is often followed with, well, if I just wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't be here. Let me give you my definition of regret. Okay. Oh, please, because your definition, I'm sure, is so important as opposed to how the Bible defines such things. Okay? It's the feeling that you and I get as a result of a bad deal. I mean, that's really what regret is. The enemy, if you go to the scripture, here's what you're going to find, is the enemy's always trying to make a deal. He tried to make a deal with Adam and Eve. He tried to make a deal with Moses. He tried to make a deal with Paul. He tried to make a deal with Jesus. I mean, he's always trying to make a deal, and his goal is that you and I make a bad one. And Oh, so he's like the ultimate bad salesman. He wants to sell us schlocky materials by getting us to make a deal with him. Oh, and then we end up having buyer's remorse or you know, for you know, agreeing to the deal the devil put before us. You are aware that, um, that what's at stake here is not whether or not I'm happy with the results of my life currently, but what's at stake is whether or not you and I spend eternity in hell or face-to-face -face before God in his kingdom. That's what's at stake here. Regret is when we do and we look back and we think, man, why did I do that? I didn't have to be here. And the only reason I am here is because back there I made a bad deal. I made a bad decision. Now notice he's saying, I don't have to be here. He's not talking about somebody in hell going, I didn't have to be here because Christ died for my sins. He's talking about somebody who's not happy with their job or maybe their marriage has been challenging and you know, you know things like that. How many of you are like, you like making deals? You like going to yard sales, flea markets? Raise your hand if you're a, you put some money in your pocket on Saturday morning and you go to town. That's my dad. He is a deal maker. He's always got a deal at, uh, home in Arkansas. He has an auction on like Tuesday night and Thursday night. 
and he buys all this stuff, ships it in, a bunch of people come out to the middle of nowhere, and they buy all this stuff. They, they bid on it. Well, when we were in school, Dad was the same, and one day, he, after school, he made us all come up to his shop. He had just purchased a semi-trailer truckload of boots. And he wanted us to help him unload them. And so me and my two brothers, we went up there and we're unloading all these boots. And now I'm not much of a cowboy, but we figured, you know what, if we're going to unload these things, it is my dad, we ought to get a pair of boots. And so as we're unloading it, you know, we're kind of opening the big boxes and looking into the, looking in there. And there's all kinds of boots, designer boots, tall boots, short boots, cowboy boots, you know, winter boots, everything. And I found a pair and I thought, you know what, they were brown, suede, Ralph Lauren. Well, I say I found a pair. The truth is, 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 is I saw a left boot. And as I looked in all the other boxes, I couldn't find a, root, a right boot. Come to find out my dad had bought a semi-tractor truckload of left-footed boots. There wasn't a- Yeah, now, if you have a pastor that tells a story like this, you might want to give him the boot. Bright boot and the whole thing. He got a good, he got a deal though. All right. Now the deal that most people look back and regret the deal they made when it comes to education, for example, maybe they traded their education for pleasure. In other words, instead of going to class, they just went and hung out and they had a whole lot of fun. But when they look back, they're like, I would have rather had the education than a few days of fun. The second regret that people have has to do with their career. 22% of our population might have been like this. They traded fulfillment for security. In in other words, as they began to look at what kind of profession they were going to go into, they said, I want something that's going to pay the bills. And they chose something that paid the bills. The problem is, is they don't enjoy the job. And so every day they get up and they hate their profession and they look back and they say, you know, I wish, I wish I would have went, went for it. You know, the number one regret of people on their deathbed, it's that they didn't go for it, that they didn't take the risk, that they didn't go after their dream, that they didn't go after what brought passion into their heart or their So the number one regret of people on their deathbed is that they just didn't go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what the number one regret for people who just died, you know, literally left their bed, uh, their deathbed for eternity? You know what the number one regret is? That they didn't repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the number one regret of people who literally just moments ago were on their deathbed, but then they died. So you've got careers... You've got education. The third greatest regret is romance. 15% of our population regrets some decision they made relationally. Maybe they traded intimacy for ease. In other words, rather than talking to their spouse, they watched NCIS. It doesn't take very much. You know, it's not very difficult to flip on the TV to have an hour-long conversation. Oh, there's all kinds of things that could come up. Or they chose one night of passion and they traded their commitment for one night of excitement. And it was exciting, but they look back on their life and they're like, man, I wish I could get the commitment back. The cost was too high. I didn't realize that I was going to lose everything. 
And then the last... Yeah, by the way, uh, losing your marriage is not the equivalent of losing everything. Losing everything is when you are thrown into the lake of fire. That's losing everything. It's just parenting. There are a lot of folks that regret the decisions they made when it comes to parenting. Maybe they traded the influence in the life of their children for influence at work. So they have influence at work, but as their kids are turning to the age of teenagers, they don't have any influence in their lives. You call this buyer's remorse. It's when people look back and they think, man, you ever bought something you wished you wouldn't have bought? You know what I'm talking When Steph and I, when we had first been married about 25 years ago, okay, we went up to Michigan. We went into a footlocker and I bought a, a jogging suit, an Adidas or Adidas, all right, jogging suit. It was leather. Come on. It was leather. And I'm just going to tell you, when I tried that thing on, I looked in the mirror. I thought, I look good. The sales clerk said, that looks good. But when I took it home and showed Stephanie and revealed that 25 years ago, I paid $500 for the jogging suit. She didn't think it looked very good. And all of my friends did what you did. They laughed at me every time I put it on. I said, what are you going to do with a leather jogging suit? So I only wore that thing about two or three times. Sold it at a yard sale for 25 cents. Buyer's remorse. When you look back at a decision you've made. Now, the problem with regret is that there's no returns, there's no refunds, and there's no exchanges. And the same thing is true in our lives. When you have an affair, you can't get a refund on that. You can't go back and say, man, you know what? It wasn't worth it. I want my marriage back. I want my relationship back. You can't get a refund on weight gain, can you? You can't go back and say, you know, when I ate that pan of brownies, I, 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 want, I want to be skinny again. Give me a refund. I don't know. You can't get a refund. You can't return it. You can't get an exchange. You have to live. Yeah. <clears throat> the younger set, the like, you know, high schoolers and teenagers, I happen to actually teach uh, teenagers um, in, in church uh, currently, and um, they have this phrase that they use. You know, you say, you complain about something, and they will retort kind of in a snarky way. Well, that sounds like a first world problem. Those of you with kids know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, oh no, first world problem here. They're suffering from buyer's remorse. Yeah, I'm not happy with these these outcomes in my life. And to which I'd basically say, yeah, cry me a river. I mean, this is so narcissistic, so selfish, so shallow, so ridiculous. How is this? A biblical sermon. Oh, yeah. The Bible hasn't even been cracked open yet. And apparently the Bible's all about how you can overcome buyer's remorse. <sighs> With the decision that you've made. Now, we've all felt regret. The only people who don't feel regret are sociopaths. And none of us want to be that. And regret actually has a positive aspect. Regret is a reminder that you can do better. Regret is the feeling that you get when you look and say, I would not have to be here. I could have made a better decision. I could have made a better deal. So here's what this whole series is going to be about, okay? Is that while you and I, when we make a bad decision, we can't do it over again. 
But what we can do is learn from the regret of others so that we can get it right the first time. What? We're going to learn from the regret of others so that we can get it right the first time. Oh, good night. I mean, talk about ridiculous. Um, Because if everybody there is honest with themselves... They haven't got it right the first time, the second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, or it doesn't matter. Oh, man, this is ridiculous. Yeah, by the way, Christianity is not all about um, you learning tips and strategies and principles that you can uh, apply to your life so that you can learn from the mistakes of others so that, unlike them, those poor schmucks, because you were watching them, you learn from their mistakes. So, unlike them, you're going to get it right the first time. No. Christianity is only for sinners, only for those people who haven't got it right and know it. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He came for those who are sinners. If you're not a sinner, somebody who's screwed up and messed up and didn't get it right, Jesus has nothing to offer you, nothing whatsoever, because he came to seek and save lost. He came to seek and save sinners like me and like you. And that's why he died on the cross. Not so that you can learn from the mistakes of others, so that he can pay the penalty, the eternal penalty for your sins, which are far more serious than just mistakes and bad decisions that you've made. We're talking about flat out rebellion against God and what he's commanded of us. In other words, we can look at someone else's regret. We can look at the bad deal they made. We can learn from that so that when we face the same decision, we make a good deal. And there just happens to be just such a story found in the scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's a guy by the name of Esau. Oh, no. Really? (laughs) This is going to be a train wreck. So you know who Esau is. Abraham, God came to him and he said, I want to, I want to have a relationship with you. He entered into a covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham that he'd be a great nation, that one day his descendants would number as many as the stars in the sky. Abraham married Sarah when he was quite old. He had a child whose name was Isaac. Isaac married Rebecca. And when Rebecca became pregnant, there was this this feeling of commotion in her belly, this feeling of tension in her belly. She went to her husband and her husband said, let's go ask God about it. God replied and he said, congratulations, you're going to have twins. And the conflict that you feel in your belly will continue even once the kids are born. Esau was born first. It was a big deal in this time period to be born first because you got 90% of the inheritance You got the money, you got the influence, you got the authority, and Esau had it all. Jacob was born second. Esau was a hunter, and he would kill the game, fix it up for his dad, and his dad thought he was great. Jacob was the opposite, and Rebekah, his mother, had great affection for him. One day, Esau came on home after hunting. He was starving to death. And Jacob had made a big pot of chili. 
happens to be the chili cook-off here in the Cooper City area. He's making some big old chili. And Esau uh, is like, man, I need to have some of that. And Jacob said, got good news for you, bro. You can, but it's going to cost you your birthright. And Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of chili. And if you look in your outline in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 17, it says, watch out for the Esau syndrome. It says, trading. What? Watch out for the Esau syndrome. (laughs) That is not (laughs) good night. Yeah. Always using the message paraphrase. That's his problem. That's horrible. Let's take a look at this passage, by the way. And what we're going to do is we're going to apply our three rules of sound biblical exegesis. And they are context, context, and context. In order to do that, we're going to go backwards into Hebrews chapter 11 a little bit so that we can get the gist of what's going on. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll start at the beginning of chapter 11 and you can uh, finish it yourself so you kind of get the idea. But uh, this is the great hall of faith passage. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous God, commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, it goes on to talk about Abraham, to talk about uh, um, many of the patriarchs, Isaac and Joseph and Moses and others. And what we'll do here is I'll fast forward to uh, verse 32 and then keep reading. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have... We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the, holy, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected." For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may, uh, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be, spoke to them, be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Yeah, good stuff there. Nothing, you know, when you read a good translation, nothing there about... Uh, suffering from Esau syndrome. Instead, the point is this. Don't, don't despise the gift of salvation and faith that you've received from Christ by pursuing, well, sin. That's the point of what's going on there. But we continue. Let's see what Troy Grambling is going to bring to bear on this passage that he's misquoting from the message paraphrase about the Esau syndrome. Away. Here's what the Esau syndrome is. Trading away God's lifelong gift to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and he wanted God's blessing. He wanted a refund, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. It didn't matter how much he cried. He couldn't get back what he gave away. So in Genesis chapter 25, you have the story. 
of how Esau did this. There are just a few verses there. We're going to read them in a moment, and here's what we're going to discover. Maybe you have read the uh, Donald Trump book, The Art of the Deal. Well, we're going to talk about the art of a bad deal. Because if we know what it takes to make a bad deal, we can learn at the same time what we must do to make a good deal. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Let me give you the first thing you need to do if you want to make a bad deal. Here's the first thing is make the deal during a time of weakness. Make the deal during a time of weakness. Look what the scripture says in 25 in verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, exhausted. And he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff. He had a big vocabulary, didn't he? Because I'm exhausted. And that's why he's also named Edom, because Edom means, means red. Esau says, I want, see, Esau was in a state of weakness. He was hungry. He was worn out. And if you want to make a bad deal, bad deals are always made when you and I find ourselves in a state of weakness. When someone walks down an aisle and says, I do, they never intend on being unfaithful and ruining that relationship. What happens? Life happens. They get tired. They, they get stressed out. They got more bills than they do money. They get into an argument with their spouse. They, they got to take the kids a million different places. And all of a sudden, in that moment of stress and overwhelm and inadequacy and all those emotions, they make a deal for one night of escape, for one night of excitement. So if you want to make a bad deal, just, just make it in a state of weakness. Sometimes it's loneliness. There are a lot of bad relationships that have begun just because somebody's lonely. So, man, it would be better no matter what. I'm just tired of being lonely. Sometimes insecurity. Man, people. And now, um, <clears throat> Troy, um, I got a question for you. Not an easy question for you, I'm sure. But um, do you have any, um, anything to offer by way of hope? For the person who is listening to you, who in a moment of weakness made a bad deal and they have committed adultery. That's the sin that you're describing there. You're describing the sin of adultery. Do you have any hope for them whatsoever? Because I'm sure based upon the size of your particular church that there are plenty of people there sitting in your audience who've, well blown it in this regard. Do you have any good news to offer them at all? Because the biblical gospel does. Whereas you and your advice here, yeah, just learn from Esau's mistakes so that you won't make it. I got news for you. If the, if the stats for like America, the general stats for America are holding true in your particular congregation, you've got a significant percentage of people sitting there in front of you right this second who've already blown it in this regard and they know they've blown it and they're at church today and they know that God punishes sins they fear God's punishment and discipline and they are looking for any shred of hope that God 
can be merciful to them. Because the passage you read about Esau wanting to, you know, he, he wasn't allowed to, he couldn't repent, even though he sought it with tears. That doesn't provide hope for any of the people who've blown it in your congregation. If anything, it's going to cause them to despair. Come to the conclusion, God's angry. I've blown it. I had one chance. I failed. There's no hope. But see, the biblical gospel doesn't say that there's no hope. The biblical gospel says this. Christ died for that sin. He literally took upon himself your sin and mine and bled and died for it. And we, when we're brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, all of our sins are pardoned. All of our idolatry, all of our disobedience to our parents, all of our not loving God with our whole heart, all of our thefts, all of our murders, all of our adulteries, all of our lying, all of our coveting, Christ has died for all of it because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for people who have learned from the mistakes of others and carefully avoided making the same mistakes. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone who is a direct descendant of Adam and Eve, who have a sinful nature, were born dead in trespasses and sins, and are guilty of breaking God's law daily. Daily through their false worship, their false doctrine, their evil deeds towards their neighbor, their selfishness, and their bend, bent in on themselvesness, or in, in Latin, the incurvatus say, Christ died for all of it. And he calls all sinners everywhere to repent. That means to change your mind. Say, God, I've got nothing. I stand before you guilty. God, you are right. I'm wrong. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what a sinner brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ. Praise. And the good news is that God actually answers that prayer. And his answer to that prayer is not, Depart from me, you wicked, evil servant. I, you, you, To hell with you. It's not what God says. He says to you, peace. Peace, son. Peace, daughter. I forgive you. You are forgiven. He cleanses us, washes away our sins, and clothes us in his own righteousness so that we don't have to perish and suffer eternal damnation, but instead can stand before him in his kingdom, not in shame, but clothed in his very righteousness, which he's given us as a gift. This is the gospel. But this isn't what Troy Gramling is preaching. He's preaching sin avoidance to a bunch of people who've already committed this sin. Made horrible financial decisions, health decisions, simply because they were insecure. Have you ever seen other guys who feel inadequate when it comes to the Beautiful young lady they're trying to impress. And they go out and do something just crazy stupid and hurt themselves. Why? Because 
of insecurity. If you want to make a bad deal, loneliness, insecurity, lust, weariness, stress, any of those things, when you and I make a deal in a state of weakness, the majority of the time, the deal is not going, is not going to be positive. I remember when we first moved here from Arkansas and I had gone from being lead pastor to being the parking attendant. And I, you know, I didn't feel like I was going in the right direction. Didn't feel like my career was off to a roaring start. I was feeling very insecure. It's not important, not valued, you know, just, and I went to Steph and I said, you know what, Steph, I'm feeling insecure. And if somebody comes up to me and tells me I'm awesome, I'm going to be vulnerable to that. So I told Steph, you need to tell me every day, three times a day, I am amazing. Okay. See, you have to be self-aware. You have to be able to look at the gauges of your life and realize I'm worn out. I'm stressed out. I feel inadequate. I feel overwhelmed. So I'm not going to make that decision right now. I, I want, you ever ran out? How many of you ever ran out of gas in your automobile? How many of you have ever ran out of gas in your automobile, but before you ran out of gas, you actually looked at the gauge and knew you were about out, but decided not to stop at that moment. And a little bit later you stopped, but it wasn't stopping to get gas. It was stopping because you were out of gas. You looked at the gauge, but you ignored it. People do that all the time. They look at their life and they say, oh, I'm not insecure. I'm fine. And then they make a bad deal that they later regret. Why? Because they don't have an honest self-awareness. And I want to encourage you to look into your life because good deals are always made by healthy people. And so you and I want to make sure that we're... And he's just condemned everybody there. Why? Because everybody there has made bad deals and that proves that they're all unhealthy on a journey to become as healthy as we can. That's why we encourage you. That's why I'm challenging you for the next 90 days to be here and to be faithful because we're going to put you in an environment. We're going to teach from God's word to get you as healthy as we can emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every area of your life. Because if you're healthy, you'll make good deals. And when you make a good deal, you don't live your life with a sense of regret. So if you want to... And yet everybody there has done things that they regret. That's why they need a crucified and risen Savior, namely Jesus. Make a a bad deal, make it in a state of weakness. Here's the second thing. If you want to make a bad deal, evaluate the deal solely upon today's circumstances. Evaluate the deal solely upon today's circumstances. Look with me in verse 31. It says, Jacob replied, okay, I'm going to give you that bowl of chili, Esau, but first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. I'm about starved to death here. So what good is a birthright to me? Now, here's the truth. Esau was not about starved death. God had made some tremendous promises to Esau, but Esau was making a decision based how he felt in that moment. Really, what were the promises that God promised Esau prior to that moment? 
I, I'm not familiar with those. Not on what God had promised him in the future. And that's so easy to do, isn't it? To make a decision based upon how you feel in those circumstances as opposed to making a decision based upon what God's promised you. The Bible says it like this. It's when you and I make a decision by what we can see instead of what God has said. The scripture encourages us over and over again to make a decision to walk by faith, to walk based on what God said, not just on what we see. God had told him, he said, man, Esau, you're in line of Abraham. And I promised Abraham that he's going to be a great nation and that his descendants are going to impact the world in a positive way. There's no way in the world you're going to starve to death. Where is this dialogue between God and Esau? It's not in Genesis. Yeah, like at all. But Esau felt like he was going to. And he made the deal. Not based on what God said about his future, but based upon what he felt in that moment. I see people do that all the time financially. See, God said there's certain things that we need to do. And if we do, he'll take care of us financially. When we're live generous, generous lives, when we're faithful to tithe. And I see folks all the time who look at their circumstances today and make a decision about their obedience to God based upon their circumstances today instead of what God promises tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as a result of it, they sin and fall short. And they are not capable of making it up. They can't. They need to be forgiven, and that's only done through the shed blood of Christ. And then you look back and you think, man, why didn't I trust God? I mean, a God that is faithful so many times in my life, why didn't I trust him? Because if I would have trusted God, if I would have been faithful to God when it came to living a generous life, when it came to my giving and my tithes, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Oh, yeah. See, I would be so much financially better off if only I had tithed. That's a complete false doctrine. If you want to make a bad deal, make a relational decision, a financial decision, make a health decision based upon how you feel today, not on what God's promised you tomorrow. When we first went into this auditorium here at Cooper City, of course, this was the only campus that we had. We went into this facility doing two services. We went into this facility. The pastor, lead pastor who had been here for over a decade transitioned out. And they transitioned me in. Yeah, that would be Dan Sutherland of, well, Transitioning Fame. That's the name of his book. Uh-huh. Now, transition always creates some conflict and some confusion. The facility cost more than I guess they thought that it was going to cost. Church didn't grow, I guess, as much as they thought that it was going to grow there in those early days. And so financially, it was, a, man, it was, it was difficult. I was excited that I inherited the building. I just wasn't excited that I inherited a giant loan to go along with it. We were bringing in about forty dollars to $60,000 a week in those days, and the payment on this building was over $100,000 a month. The utilities alone were over $10,000 a month. It was a challenging, challenging time, and the city came to us and offered to buy from us the parking lot that's on the other side of Sterling. There's five acres over there. I, I know you don't like to park over there, but it's, it's there. And they were going to put a park in, and they needed the parking. And so they... Oh, man. Ah! 
Okay, so, um, yeah, uh, the issue here is that, um, unfortunately, there's they got overflow parking for people to show up to hear this pablum. Came to us and they said, you know, you'll be able to use it sometimes, we think, but, but man, if you'd sell us that property and you know what, the amount of money that they were offering us would have allowed me to sleep a lot better at night. The money they were offering would have put us in a much better financial position. It would have took so much of the stress that we were feeling in those circumstances away. I mean, with the stroke of a pen, it would be completely gone. We were only running two services. We only had one campus. We had enough parking. But we didn't didn't sell it. And the reason we didn't sell it is because we weren't going to make that decision based upon what we were feeling in that moment. We were going to make that decision based upon what God had promised us in the future. And had we... But what did God promise you? Hold that parking lot, many of you wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have room for you. Lives wouldn't be changed. Families wouldn't be reconciled. We'd be looking back with a great sense of regret saying... What? Explain to me this life change thing. What do you mean lives wouldn't be changed? How many people have been brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of of their sins at Potential Church? I haven't heard the gospel preached there yet. That was the craziest thing we did because although it released the tension in that moment, it robbed from us the blessing God had for us in the future. Right? Now, it's real easy to get there. I mean, I could have said, you could have said what Esau said. What good is it going to be for us to have parking if we can't pay our bills today? Uh, It's easy to get there, but I'm telling you, if you want to make a good decision, make your decision, make your deal based on what God's promised, not what you're feeling today. See, financial blessing is on the other side, and our tendency is sometimes want to get out from under when God desires for us to remain under, because he's doing something in us to prepare us for the blessing he has for us. Uh, You got any verses that say this? See, God took us through that financial challenge to prepare us for what he wants to do today and what he wants to do tomorrow. Had we sold it, we would have short-circuited everything he was doing. Don't do that. Don't make a deal based solely upon what you're feeling today. Remember the Esau syndrome? Hebrews chapter 12, trading God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. And then if you want to make a a bad deal, the third thing to do is don't get an appraisal for what you're trading. Don't, what? An appraisal? Where where does the Bible talk about appraisals? (sighs) Esau completely undervalues what he traded that day. Oh yeah, he could have gotten so much more than a bowl of chili. All he needed was a good solid appraisal. What it says in verse 33, Jacob said, okay, swear to me first though Esau. So Esau did, he swore to Jacob and he sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave him bread and lentil stew. He ate it, he drank it, he got up and he went away. So Esau despised his birthright. I love the way the voice says it. It says Esau got up and acted as if nothing had happened. The, the voice 
You mean the translation put out by the emergent church? Oh, good night. You know, Esau gave away millions of dollars for a bowl of soup. He gave away influence and authority for a bowl of soup. Because Oh, he could have had a purpose-driven life if only he had embraced his God destiny and not sold it for a bowl of soup. He didn't do an appraisal. He didn't realize the value of what he was giving away. So easy to do. Right? You, you read about those things at yard sales and flea markets where people don't realize what it is they have. I found just a couple. There was a guy in Indiana. He was on his way home and he stopped at a yard sale and he picked up three things. A couple pieces of furniture and a painting. Got home and he put the furniture in the living room and he used the painting to cover up a hole that they had in the wall. Well, about six years later, they were playing a board game, him and his family. It's called Masterpiece, and it was an art game. And one of the cards, it had a picture on there that he thought, you know what, that looks a lot like the picture we hung over that hole. So he took it over there, and he kind of put it up next to it, and he said, you know, I, I, I think it is. He went and he had it checked out, and he sold that painting for $1.2 million. $1.2 million. Now, can you imagine the, the guy there at the yard sale? The night after he sold those three things, you can just kind of hear him going in and say, Martha, had a good day today. 500 bucks. When in reality, he had $1.2 million. It was his. It was his. He just didn't know it. He didn't do an appraisal. He sold it for much less than it was really worth. It happened again in Pennsylvania. There was a gentleman, this time not a yard sale, but a flea market. Went to the flea market, just kind of looking around, you know how you do, and he saw a frame. And he thought, you know what, that looks bad, but I like the way it's made, and I think I can restore it. Bought it for $4. Took it home, started working on it. I don't know what you do, but he was trying to do it. And he realized, you know what, I can't, I can't fix this thing. And he thought he had lost $4. So he just kind of threw it to the side, and when he did, the picture came out. And behind the picture, there was a folded piece of paper. He opened it up, and it was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. There was only 24 in circulation at, at that time. He sold that Declaration of Independence for $2.1 million. The guy that bought it sold it six years later for over $8 million. Can you imagine the flea market owner? I mean, we could have at least got $4.99. I mean, goodness gracious. But he didn't know it was in the painting. This has nothing to do with what the scripture says, nor does it have anything to do with Esau. Uh, and especially, it has nothing to do with Jesus, which is what the sermon is supposed to be about. He sold it for $4, and it was worth over $8 million. It was his. It was in his pocket. He owned it. He had every right to it. He just didn't know it. See, before you make a deal, you need to do an evaluation. You need to do an appraisal of what you're about to trade. When I was a junior in high school, we made it to the finals. I was playing basketball. We made it to the finals of every tournament we played in. I think there were like four or five tournaments. We lost in the finals, got blown out. Not just lost, we got blown out. 
And so me and my boys, we decided, you know what? We're going to win all those tournaments next year. And so all summer long, we got together and we practiced and we played. We played for hours every day. I mean, we determined that next year, my senior year, was going to be the year. We were going to win those tournaments. We were going to get college scholarships. I mean, it was going to be an incredible, incredible year. And sure enough, the ball went up into the air. And after six games, we were three and three. Not quite the year we were hoping for. We're just even. I was so discouraged. We're not even going to make it to the finals of the tournament, let alone win it. Talk about making a bad deal. Let me uh, read a passage of scripture that I think may apply here. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting at verse 34. Here's what it says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Yeah, um, uh, Troy Gramling here is ashamed of what the Bible says. That's why he's not preaching what it says. That's why he's scratching, itching ears, rather than preaching the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the biblical gospel. So even though he gains a megachurch, Troy Gramling's on his way to losing his entire soul. Sounds like a bad deal to me. Scholarship tonight wants some loser. Their college. I remember one night, we were three and three, my dad, he walked into my room and he sat down there on the bed and he began to build into me. He began to believe in me, even though at that time I I didn't believe in myself. He began to encourage me. See, I, I don't know what else my dad could have been doing with that time. My dad worked all the time. I I don't know who called him and I don't know where else he could have been. I I don't know what else he uh, had an opportunity to do. I, I don't know if he was tired and could have just watched television. But I do know that whatever else he would have done, he would have completely undervalued the time that he spent with me. Because it's been about 25 years ago, and still, when I get discouraged today, I remember that evening when my dad came in and he encouraged, he believed in me. I'm so glad that he didn't trade that for a little more TV time. I'm so glad that he didn't trade that for another job. I'm so glad he didn't trade that for just hanging out with his buddies. I'm so glad that my dad came in and he spent that time with me. Don't undervalue. Don't undervalue the time. Don't undervalue the relationship. Don't undervalue the opportunity. Don't undervalue the resources. You may just have a few bucks. And you may say, you know what, I'm just going to spend it over here. But God's got this tremendously big opportunity over here. But you say, Troy, I just got a few bucks. There's no way. Don't undervalue. Don't undervalue what God's given you. By the way, after my dad came in, we won the next 31 games in a row. 
We made it to the finals of all those tournaments. We won all those tournaments. And several of us did get that college scholarship. I don't know if it had anything to do with my dad walking in that night, but I know that that night when my dad walked in, he gave me something much more valuable than any of those things. Don't undervalue. Don't make a trade that later you'll regret. Now, the reality is, is we're all kind of like Esau, aren't we? I mean, we've all made some some deals that, that we're not happy with. We've all made some deals that we sometimes regret. And the problem is, is you can't get a refund. You can't do it over again. Let's see if he accidentally steers into the gospel. I'm, my ears have just perked up. Maybe he'll accidentally stumble upon it. You can't say, man, I want that time back. Come on, I, I want to spend more time with my kids. Let's go buy a big wheel. I know you're 35, but it'll be fun. You, you, you can't get it back. You, you, can't, you can't do it over again. But see, the great thing about the gospel, the great thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is while you and I can't do it over again, we can get an exchange. We can exchange our failures in the past for the blessings he has for us in the future. And my hopes are now dashed against the rocks. That's why he went to the cross. That's what this whole thing's about. That's why it's such good news. Look what it says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. But Christ who rescued us from the curse that was pronounced on us by the law. What is the law? The law is the revelation of the bad deal. The law reveals that you and I made a decision that has led to some circumstances. (laughs) That's led to some circumstances. Uh Downplaying sin. (sighs) That if we would have just done it different, he rescued us from that. And how how, how did he rescue? When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself all of our bad decisions. Okay, we're getting warmer. So I, I put it in your outline like this. Because of the cross, you can exchange the regret of past mistakes for the hope of future blessings. You can exchange past guilt for future forgiveness. You can ex- uh, future forgiveness. How about forgiveness now? Exchange past failure for future success. Huh? Paul, who wrote a lot of the Bible, had a whole lot of regret. Yeah, he committed a whole lot of sin. I mean, he took the life of Christ's followers. He hunted them down. That's right, he did. When he was just a kid, they killed one of the greatest church leaders of his day, a guy by the name of Stephen, and Paul held their coats while they did it and cheered him on. Uh, I don't think he was a kid. Had a whole lot of regret. And yet, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, you know what, I've not already reached the goal. I am... Serious. The gospel is right there in Philippians chapter 3, and you're going to start at verse 12. Or am I all totally miss it? Already fully mature, but I am making every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I, I don't consider myself to, to got this whole thing figured out, but I love this next part. But the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and reaching forward to what is ahead of me. Now, you know what Paul had in his mind when he penned those words? The gospel. He had NASCAR in his mind. What? 
Then no, they did Hugh, sappy music. They have NASCAR in the first century, but they had chariot races. And when it comes to a chariot race, those chariots that they race, they're not like the ones you see on TV where they're... He came so close. I mean, seriously, he could have just tripped and, and landed on the gospel. This nice, secure place for the rider to be. No, no, it, it was a very unstable place. And what those chariot riders would do is that as they would, as they would be up on that platform, they'd have to kind of lean into the race. As they held on to the reins, they couldn't lean back or they... Okay, <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, okay, here's what he says. Look out for those dogs, this is verse 2, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, all of his good works. I count them as rubbish. Greek words a lot stronger than that. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness that is from God and depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... Why can he do that? Because it's all forgiven in Christ. He's clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? That's what he says. Forgetting what is what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So there's Troy Gramling. So close. I mean, he's. I mean, he's just literally sentences away from the gospel itself. Okay, right there in what I just read in Philippians three, and he thinks the solution is just forget what's behind you, strain towards what's ahead. <sighs> Sappy music and all. All back. They couldn't know. They just kind of lean in to the race, lean into the horses. That's what Paul says. Paul says, you know what, I don't have this whole thing figured out, but this one thing I know, I'm not leaning back into my failures, I'm leaning forward into my success. The no, that's not what he's saying. Bad decisions that I've made in the past will not define my future. That's not what he's saying either. You've got to hear me on this. I don't know how you got where you are. I don't know how many bad deals you've made in your life. but Enough to send me to hell. Same with you, by the way.
I do know that if your heart beats and if your lungs are taking in air, you can still get to where God created you to be from where you are. Again, it's not the gospel. Because all of us were destined for a box six feet under. You don't have to live with regret. That's right, because Christ forgives sins. He bled and died for them. But you do have to make the exchange. I, I, I know it's a little humbling. So Jesus is like, you know, the, you know, the return desk over at Walmart or your local mall. You, you made it. You got a bum deal. So you got to go exchange the gift. See, you, you can't get to tomorrow's blessings until you're willing to admit yesterday's bad deals. Those things that keep you up at night. Those things that maybe even make it difficult to walk into this building because you feel a little, a little guilty. For Philippians 4.13, that I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. The exchanging that regret, declaring that that will not define my legacy because Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Are you going to talk about the true forgiveness of sins or not? Yeah, probably not. And then of course Jeremiah 29:11. No, no, you're not going to end on that. Please tell me you're not going to. For I know the plans I have for you says the Lord. Yeah, again, read it in context. Jeremiah 29:11 is not a general promise that God knows his plans for you and he's going to give you a future and a hope. That's not what this is about. Go read it in context. Start at verse 1 and keep reading to like verse 18 or 19 in Jeremiah 29. You'll get it. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Don't take your regret home. Let's learn from it and let's get to where God created us to be. Would you bow your head? No. Yeah, you don't get to pray for us. Well, so, yeah, we have to check in from time to time over there at Potential Church to see if uh, they've yet shed their uh, potential, uh, church in potential status and have regained church status. But uh, no, they haven't. So close. He, I mean, he almost accidentally preached the biblical gospel. It would have been quite the wonder, but um, no, instead it turned into quite a blunder. And there you go. You make the Bible all about you and better decisions so that you can have happier outcomes in your life. And you miss that the Bible's all about what God has done to save you in Christ. And all of the stories point us to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and rose again on the third day for your salvation and for mine. That's the good news. Repent and believe this good news, because only this good news can save you. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>